0: Proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the reformed confessions of the faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically
1: sound churches planted and on mission for the kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr. I am your host, as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. And on today's podcast, we have Chris Santola. Chris is the worship pastor at Oasis Community Church in Hesperia, California. It is an RCA church where Chris has been serving uh, in various capacities for a few years, but has been the worship leader for the last four months. Um, Chris, how you doing, man? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate you being willing to be on the podcast. If if my notes are correct, you've been a worship leader for like 25 years in various places. That means you must be really, really old. Yeah, <laughs> it feels that way sometimes. Or you started like as a baby worshiping. It could have, yeah, okay. Uh, why don't you just share a little bit about your journey into Reformed theology, and then we'll jump right into worship.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, when I was 13, I got saved in a four-square Pentecostal church and uh, was there for a number of years and then ended up going over to uh, Calvary Chapel here and uh, ended up down the road uh, becoming a lead pastor with the Calvary movement and was asked to take over, uh, Calvary chapel. That was kind of in a rural area here in Southern California. And so I accepted that and it was a few years into my pastorate there that in my own study and preparation that I came to embrace the doctrines of sovereign grace. And, uh, I was still what you would, uh, probably just call it dispensational Calvinist. And uh, it was later on, maybe another uh, year or so after that, that in my preparation in the book of Romans, uh, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, that uh, I realized that uh, my dispensationalism was not going to hold and uh, ended up embracing covenant theology. And uh, it was just a little while after that, we ended up beginning to work with one of our local uh, sister churches here, which was an RCA church and actually where I'm at now. And we started working at replanting our church in the city area of Hesperia. And uh, at that time, I actually went through the process to become a commission pastor with the RCA. And so it was during that process, I guess you would say that I kind of uh, officially, uh, Became a uh, an official confessional uh, reformed guy. So that's kind of a, a brief summary of it all. so so now you're like a three forms unity guy,
1: and I'm guessing if you were dispensational, you uh, you had a quite a, a a shock in the system as you really began to wrestle through how covenantal theology from Genesis to Revelation begins to impact the way we see everything from ecclesiology to to soteriology to eschatology?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it was one thing to embrace the doctrines of grace. Uh, it was another thing to start recognizing that the entire framework that I understood the narrative of Scripture within uh, to be something other than everything that I had instilled into my thinking up until that point. And so it was a, it was a slow process. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the type to just jump onto a bandwagon, uh, theologically just because, uh, you know, a lot of the other people within my circle are there. And so I really had to walk through a lot of that and, uh, and have it proven to me that uh, those things were so, and especially even overcoming a lot of the, uh, well, a lot of it was a, a lot of straw man kind of uh, arguments against certain issues within covenant theology and covenant theology itself, and uh, and then really just beginning to form a biblical theology uh, that kind of came out of everything that I was learning of scripture during that transformation
1: was there a particular area of theology in the in the sense of whether it was ecclesiastic uh, theology or whether it was uh, eschatology that that really you struggled the most with or maybe it was soteriology?
0: <laughs> Or was it all of it? I don't know. It it was all of it, but I think specifically, you know, the doctrines of grace, uh, that was in and of itself a huge thing because I was a rabid anti-Calvinist. You know, you would have probably found me in some of those Facebook groups that uh, (laughs) that now we find ourselves so uh, vehemently disagreeing with. Um, But, uh, you know, I had really planted my flag in the geisler camp Hmm. Um, i had read chosen but free a few times and really felt like that accurately represented where i was at and uh, i had read bryson's work uh, dark side of calvinism calvinism weighed and found wanting uh you know a a number of those different types of things and i was really working there within my camp so-called Uh, just to fortify my belief that Calvinism was wrong. Um, I can remember one time a friend of mine who had uh, begun going to a Reformed Baptist church gave me a tape of his pastor preaching on the sovereignty of God, and it literally made me nauseous. Uh, it It sickened me (laughs) <laughs> to my stomach, just hearing what this guy was saying, to the point where I actually felt like I had to go put on some uh, some you know Arminian <laughs> preaching <laughs>
1: to, to to wash uh, yourself with the arminian really soap. to, yeah, to yeah.
0: wash myself I had to like cleanse my palate <laughs> of uh of this doctrine that I was hearing, and what ended up doing it was a a friend of mine told me, you know you really should read James White's book uh the potter's freedom. And I said, All right, well, I want to be unbiased in this, so let's see what these guys have got to say. And I can remember I was 20, 20 pages in, and I was panicked and, and just recognizing that uh, everything that I thought I knew was crumbling down. And, uh, you know, the one thing I had been taught within Calvary was you believe Scripture, Scripture is the final authority. Not man's thoughts, not philosophy, but the word of God. And as I watched as White deconstructed Geisler's arguments and revealed them to really be philosophical in nature and not scriptural in nature, and you know, on top of many of the other issues with that book, uh, it, it started me down that path. And it probably took a good year or so be uh, of just constant studying and really just trying to take it all in. And my wife would say, I mean, we would be driving down the freeway and I would be bouncing things off of her and and telling her, you know, I'm not saying this is correct, but if this was correct, what would that mean for this and this and that? And so uh, it finally came together. That was a, a huge area that really took some time to work through because I had been so thoroughly indoctrinated uh, on the opposite side. And uh, uh, along with that, I think eschatology would have been the other big one. Um, that you know, was, was That's
1: funny because the eschatology one was the bigger pill for me to swallow because of so much of the dispensationalism that had found its way even into reformed, quasi-reformed churches— you know, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's it's permeated there because we all want to have this, uh, uh, you know, left behind experience. We're taken out of the stress and uh, the 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 idea of struggle and tribulation. And when you start to wrestle through that, you start to see the dividing of the people of God and things like that. So I I, it, I resonate with this one. Is what I guess I'm trying to say. So uh-huh. this is yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. You share your story, not mine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, uh, you know, I totally agree with you. I think eschatology was the bigger thing. Um, I had always been an eschatology buff. Um, I spent a lot of time reading guys like Walford and, uh, you know, really the, the Ryries, the, the really heavy, you know, Dallas Seminary dispensational guys. Um, and that was just kind of a no-brainer. And so when I became a, a Calvinist... I sort of fell within the John MacArthur camp of, all right, you know, I'm a Calvinist, but I'm a dispensational Calvinist. And what changed that was I was preaching through the book of Romans and I got to chapter nine and uh, I, I was preparing to preach in chapter nine and I'm doing exegesis on that whole section of nine, 10 and 11. And I start realizing that everything I had been told about those passages wasn't what those passages said and uh you know i'm looking at all of the verb tenses there and everything and i'm just going this is not talking about uh, a future salvation of the jewish people and uh this was this is talking about a past and present salvation of the jewish people and really it was chapter 9 verse 6 that started me down that road um, you know, not all who have descended from Israel are Israel, but as the children of the promise who are counted as seed. And uh, that started me asking a lot of questions. And I knew I was in trouble eschatologically because I knew that if my uh, ecclesiology changed and, uh, and to put it in the term it's sometimes used, but my Israelogy changed, then my eschatology would by necessity be changed by that as well. And so it was kind of a big mountain to uh, to overcome. But uh, once I got through that issue, I-, I went straight from Romans to Revelation. And, <laughs> and uh, went and uh, began to work through the book of Revelation and uh, ended up coming out of all of that as a covenantal, uh, all millennial guy.
1: <laughs> amen and amen. Uh, it, it's, it's funny, because, you, you know, with, the, with, with my heritage being in dispensationalism, there were a lot of those books that floated around, and I remember coming across Louis Sperry Schaeffer and reading through his theology as I was really wrestling with becoming more covenantal, and really identified that, man, he really believes not just in two different types of, you know, two different uh, people of God, he believes in two different ways of salvation. Yeah, and that was earth shattering to me, and I began to see how that kind of uh, uh, smudged over into all the other dispensationalism. Because what do you do with when you have two different types of people and and Old Testament, New Testament, and it's so much cleaner, in my opinion, obviously that covenant theology from Genesis to Revelation is a doctrine of grace that is all of God. And there's always been one people, and we're being grafted into it, and not all of Israel's is Israel, but we all are from the line of Abraham. And what a beautiful picture there, and it goes all the way back even to the garden with Adam and Eve, but, but the, the, the uniformity of that compared to just the, the mess of what I'll call dispensational theology. So man, you are, you are preaching to the choir here, so I definitely <laughs> appreciate your thoughts. I, I got to move this conversation along, though, and get to the to the heart of what we want to be talking about as a worship leader. And you know, I got to believe that your worship, not just your style, but even your theology of worship, has greatly been impacted by covenantal theology. And maybe could you share that a little bit, just how Reformed theology has impacted? Your view of worship and how it maybe found its way out in applications.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It it definitely has changed my perspectives on what we do in worship. Um, You know, reformed worship, or you might say, you know, worship within the reformed church, is kind of a, a a widely varying thing. I mean, perhaps as much as it is. Uh, within any other uh, area of the church. But uh, I think when it has come to reformed worship, uh, I think I began to realize the importance of substance over style, Um, especially since I had been doing this since I was a, a very young person. And in the context I was doing it, um, a, a lot of it was just, your typical 7-Eleven kind of <laughs> praise and worship stuff, you know. And you're not uh,
1: talking about the Slurpee, you're talking... <laughs> you no,
0: know, I'm talking seven words repeated 11 times. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, just sort of prom songs to Jesus kind <laughs> of uh, praise and worship stuff. And I started realizing, wow, this is this is not what we ought to be doing when the church gathers on the Lord's Day in worship. Uh, And so my perspective on worship began to become much more theological. Uh, I wanted my songs to be communicating the same truth about God that the sermon was communicating. And so uh, in that sense, I began to become much more, uh, I hate to use the word picky, but uh, definitely much more discerning. Let's use that word. Uh, when it came to what I wanted to use as far as songs and worship.
1: What are, what are like, take us through that process. So as you're choosing songs, what are the, obviously you're saying theology matters. What are you not willing to yield on?
0: Well, um, I think when it comes to music, I mean, the, the obvious things are that the songs have got to be theologically correct. um, I think that uh, there's a lot of stuff out there these days that even that come from within Calvinistic churches, that uh, they've got a great melody and it's, it's singable and and it's uh, in in many other ways would be suitable for worship on the Lord's day, but it might have one line in there that just says something that really just, it kind of catches your attention. You go, you know, I'm really not sure that that, lines up with what Scripture teaches about that. Um, You know, I try to... uh, There's a couple different principles I follow looking at uh, worship music, and one of them is that I want to make sure there's no obvious uh, or even subtle doctrinal uh, errors in the songs. I also recognize that no one song has to tell the whole story. Um, No, no sermon ever tells the whole story and no one song ever has to tell the whole story either, but it does need to fit rightly within the whole story. And, uh, so I I tend to be just discerning on that side of things. You know, there's a song just the other day I was looking at the whole song is really good a lot of it just comes straight out of scripture. But then there's one line, which actually does come out of scripture that, uh, I'm still just wrestling with and thinking uh, it's actually the song. It's uh, though you slay me by uh, the group Shane and Shane. And I'd recently heard somebody sing this song and there's a line in it that, uh, I mean, uh, it says, uh, let this cup pass from me now. And I said, you know, I'm really not sure that I am comfortable singing and leading other people to sing something that was said by Jesus as he was preparing to drink the cup of the Father's wrath, you know, imagery, which comes out of Zechariah. Um, I mean, that was a very specific thing going on. And so I look at that theologically, and I'm like, I really don't think I want to be comparing our trials (laughs) that we endure with Jesus, uh, taking the cup of the father's wrath as he goes to the cross. Wow. Yeah. And, And so that would be, uh, you know, just something recently where I'm like, you know, really, uh, just not something I'm comfortable with. And so, uh, you know, musically, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I tend to lean a lot into the hymns. Uh, I do a lot of kind of modernized hymns in my worship sets. Uh, You know, I I tend to be careful there too, because I I used to hear people talk about the hymns all the time as though that was kind of the, uh, the big thing. And, you know, over time I came to realize there are a lot of really bad hymns out there too. Amen and, to that. And so, you know, just because it's in the hymnal doesn't mean it's great. Just because it's and old
1: doesn't so, mean it's good. I get it. I get it. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so uh, I tend to be fairly selective there as well. So I, I kind of do a blend of uh, modernized hymns and also uh, some contemporary stuff as well. What? But I, I think the important thing for me is that I'm always trying to line up whatever we are going to be singing each week with whatever my pastor is going to be preaching on that week. Step us through that process, because I know the guys
1: that are aspiring to be worship pastors or serving in that capacity at their churches. What does it look like for you and your pastor to go back and forth as you're preparing the songs, and I'm assuming that's that's part of your responsibility, and he's preparing the sermon? How do you guys make sure those are married together and, and it's a good marriage as opposed to just a uh,
0: uh, one that's not good? <laughs> Gotcha. Well, basically, part of my role here at Oasis is that I handle not only uh, worship, per se, but also liturgy. And so more or less everything that happens uh, within the sanctuary doors from the beginning of service to the end is kind of uh, in my lane. And so what I will do is at the beginning of the week, we get together and I hear from my pastor Uh, Here's where the message is going. This is what I want to talk about Um, Sometimes he'll kind of throw something at me like hey do you think you can include something along these lines in there and What I will do is I will do my best to orchestrate every aspect of our service around whatever the text is and the sermon is uh, for that Sunday And, and so you know I will begin with our call to worship and I will choose scripture that has to do with whatever that subject is. Uh, I really typically try to always draw out of the Psalms for our call to worship and then from there I'll lead into two songs that uh, I do everything I can to make sure that they are in some way connecting to whatever that message is and From those two songs, I then lead into a time of confession and then assurance. And so during our time of confession, uh, I will kind of close that with a prayer. And I will have kind of laid out my thoughts for that prayer, utilizing scripture that has to do with whatever that subject is. And then when we come to assurance, uh, I will somehow tie whatever that subject is into our time of assurance. And sometimes it's subtle. It's not uh, always really blatantly obvious, um, because I try to arrange our liturgy in a way that it does not come across as, uh, kind of, uh, robotic. Um, you know, when, when I'm up there going through those times of the call to worship, confession, assurance, uh, people will tell me, you know, I, I can't tell that you're reading that off of a a manuscript. And because I do try to, uh, to just flow with it very naturally and really to, to allow the Holy Spirit to uh, even work through those times and to uh, to minister to people through those times and not just to make it a, uh, just kind of that that almost cliche sort of, okay, everybody stand and now we're gonna read this together and now everybody sit down. And a, a very kind of strict, uh, I just described it as kind of you know, robotic type of liturgy. It, it tends to just feel very natural and, uh, and heartfelt, which it is. And so anyway, from there, you know, my pastor will come up and uh, he will preach the sermon. And then closing worship and response is, is always geared as being responsive to what the word has said that day. And then uh, I will write a closing benediction that we will all read together that, again, is tied into whatever it was that uh, we would have learned from the passage that day.
1: I like what you're saying. First of all, because I think you're not afraid to use the word liturgy, yet I hear a lot of younger Reformed guys maybe shy away from that, but the reality is everybody has a liturgy. It's uh-huh. just what is yours, right? And, yeah. And the second thing I really hear you hearing is there's a book written by um, Robert Smith Jr. called Doctrines That Dance. And it's about preaching, but I'm hearing it here in your liturgy that there should be a good rhythm uh, between the doctrine that's being taught and the way in which it's presented. And you're trying to not make it very rote. You're trying to make sure that it is fresh. It 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 looks alive because <laughs> it is alive. It's 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 life changing, life giving. Uh, good the good news of the gospel. And it's not just let's go through these motions, but Let's, let's watch the marriage between good theology and, and good application, and, and that's what I hear you saying, and that excites me, because that's what I hope for a lot of uh, Reformed churches as they're being revitalized and, and, and planted— is there's a good marriage, as we've already stated, between our doctrine and our worship. And and a lot of times it's, it's disjointed, it's dysfunctional. What do you say, to, though, to the guy who says, that's great, Chris, I hear everything you're doing, I just don't have that much influence. Man, they basically, you know, I get to do three songs, and... What do you say to that guy? You know, he doesn't have the influence you have over the whole liturgy. What, how can he begin to, um, in a sense, make an impact to make sure that there's a good dance between the doctrine and the, and the liturgy as a whole, the
0: worship? Yeah, that's a tough place to be. Um, you know, I, over the years, I think I found myself in that place a number of times. And uh, my advice to that person would be uh, baby steps. Um, you know, there there's two ways to bring about change. Uh one is evolution and the other is revolution. <laughs> and uh <laughs> and uh that's definitely the place, you know, revolution comes in overnight and changes everything and just says, "Hey, deal with it." Uh if you're that guy that you're describing, you don't have the leverage to pull a revolution and you probably shouldn't anyway. Um Evolution is going to be the way to work with that is to try and implement slow, small changes uh, in your song selection and in what you can add into the service. I mean, one of the things that we try and stand back and look at is the big vision of the overall service. Um, Everything in there is where it is at for a reason. Uh, you know, we do our announcements before we do our call to worship because we don't see our announcements as being a part of our worship service.
1: Amen.
0: Uh, You know, (laughs) I don't think
1: I can say that strong enough. Amen. It's not. It's not. It's information. It's important information for the church, but it's not part of worship.
0: Exactly. And so once we do our call to worship, everything from that point on is a steady ascent in worship and so from there you know we, we sing two songs we do confession and assurance uh, we receive our offering which we remind people weekly we see this as a part of our worship it is a response to the generosity and goodness of God towards us and you know from there we go into the sermon the preaching of the word and then following that we have communion weekly And so uh, everything climaxes with the preaching of the Word, uh, the partaking in the Lord's Supper, and then we conclude with response and song and a closing benediction. Um, You know, to some people it might seem just kind of random, but all of that is ordered the way it's ordered by design.
1: I was just going to ask you, that: do you think your people recognize it? Because man, what it sounds like is you legitimately, and I don't mean to go back to this, but you have a liturgy that dances. And I'm just wondering how cognizant your people are of what's, what that flow looks like.
0: I think some are probably more aware than others. Um, you know, I, I think, especially in the time in which we live, people are not really uh, liturgically minded, you might say. Uh, you know, it's not something that they're really consciously thinking about. But what we have tried to do here is to consistently remind people that uh, everything we do in worship is responsive. Um, I I was really big on this when I was in the pulpit more that uh, I would talk about imperatives and uh, indicatives and, you know, that everything that Christ has done for us uh, precedes and empowers anything we are called to do in response. And so... Uh, which is why even in the structure of our worship, we do two songs to begin our service. We do three songs afterward, uh, which might seem kind of trivial, but we like to look at it as though the bulk of our song is in response to the gospel, response to Christ and who he is and what he's done and what we have learned of him in the word, uh, as opposed to uh, something that uh, we do that's... Uh, somehow bringing us to that place, you might say. I it, guess.
1: It's funny because my worship leader at, at our church, we we have the virtually the same idea. We follow the three G's, guilt, grace, gratitude. And so as we move through our liturgy, you're moving from guilt where there is a confession of sin publicly, and then we're given assurance as part of the movement towards grace, obviously the preaching of the word. Um, and we try to do our, our sacraments under the grace portion, um, but then you get to gratitude. And as we move to that gratitude, we we see that one of the ways that our people can respond in gratitude is singing, so a bulk of our worship is always at the end. And a lot of people have begun to catch on that there's something different, but they can't identify it yet until they've been mm-hmm. with us for a while, and they start to resonate with that. It's so cool to hear you say that, because um, you're the only the second uh, person to ever tell me if we do, that you do that when, when we were one, just because in, the, in trying to be strategic about our liturgy and the movement, the flow of it, or the dance of it, if you will... Um, so I appreciate that. That's that's awesome.
0: I guess we could we could call that the Heidelberg pattern for uh, for liturgy. <laughs> we're Get Presbyterian, but God. we love the Heidelberg Get here. <laughs> yes, yes.
1: The guilt, grace, crazy. If you don't know what we're referring to, just pick up your your Heidelberg Catechism and read the second uh, second uh, question of the first Lord's Day, and very clearly uh, it gives the three G's uh, for you. Um, let me ask you this are, are your study of this did this just come by listening to podcasts and discussions or were you doing um, some reading and if if so what books would you say were most
0: instrumental in helping to develop your your liturgy You know strangely enough, my liturgy has kind of just flowed naturally out of my theology um you know, I'm not a, a seminary guy. Uh, I think there's a, a definitely a part of me that wishes I was. <laughs> it, it's something that uh, in God's providential uh, grace that uh, has just not been a part of my journey. Um, you know, all of my theological training has really all been done on an, an independent basis. Now, I've utilized as much uh, seminary material and that kind of thing as I could get my hands on. Um, and, and so I'm really grateful for stuff like iTunes U and, uh, and so many other resources like that, that, uh, you know, the internet has made possible where, you know, somebody who may not have the ability to actually go off to seminary can actually get that level of teaching, you know, typically for free, which is incredible. And so, you know, I've utilized a lot of the stuff from Covenant Seminary and RTS and Westminster and places like that. And uh, and aside from that, even just having a lot of friends who are also pastors within various Reformed uh, denominations. I've got some guys that are OPC and PCA and uh, guys in the RCA and the CRC and uh, you know, a number of my friends uh, went down to Master Seminary here, which is a MacArthur Seminary down there in Los Angeles. And uh, I've got a friend who's a professor out at RTS uh, in Jackson. And so being able to have a lot of these guys around me that I have had the privilege to pick their brains <laughs> has been incredible. And so, you know, my liturgy, when it comes to uh, how I want to put together service. Uh, is really the, the response to what I have learned from Scripture and where I'm at theologically, and also not only myself, but even you know, the others I work with here at Oasis, my pastor and a number of the other guys, that as we sit down, these are the things that uh, we discuss and really try to work together on.
1: And, and in that in that discussion, I mean obviously it's iron sharpening iron and, and you guys are going back and forth And as you're growing through that, um, what would you say would've been probably the most the, the greatest learning curve for you guys as a team in, in trying to replant? and using worship as the means of, 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 of grace as it is to, to the church. I mean, you think about the preaching of the word being there, the sacraments uh, being there, the, the fellowship of the saints. What were some of the learning curves you guys had in that journey? Well, during,
0: uh, and just to, to clarify, uh, you know, when I was replanting in the city, we did that for a couple years, and then we decided that we ought to merge together with Oasis. And so, uh, my church, which was called redeemer at the time, uh, ended up coming and merging together with Oasis. And it was at that time that I ended up coming on staff with, uh, Oasis here. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the learning curve was definitely coming out of a non-reformed background, trying to help people to see the value in doing those things, uh, you know, I, I am, I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't had a lot of experience outside of Southern California, but I, I know that here things can tend to be pretty loose liturgically. Uh, like you said, uh, everybody's got a liturgy. just matters what it looks like. Um, you know, things can tend to just be very, very loose within churches here. And especially me coming from a very rural area, um, it was very, very informal. And so, as we started trying to transform that over time, I think the biggest issue we would have was that people just said, "I don't understand why we want to do this. Uh, why would we want to have something in our service like this?" Uh, and for anybody who came from a Roman Catholic background, or uh, you know, anything like that, you tend to get pushback from them, as uh, you know, this this kind of seems, you know, like what I grew up in and, and very structured. And I think that that was a lot of what would freak people out was as soon as you started to put any kind of a real structure into your service like that, people panicked (laughs) because it started feeling, in their words, you know, quote unquote, religious. Well, isn't that
1: funny? Because I, I think most people have a wrong view of worship. They think worship is for them, the consumer, rather than God is the audience of worship, if you will. And, Absolutely. And he and, and it needs to be aimed at him. And I think when you start playing with worship, man, all kinds of wars and stuff begin. And rather than seeing what we're trying to do, which is bring more uh, uh, the regulative principle aspects of... Let's be faithful in worship, that we're honoring God the way he wants to be honored in worship, because we all know what happened to Uzzah, right, when he mm-hmm. when he touched the ark, right? It would have been better for the dirt to have gotten uh, contact with the ark than for Uzzah. But we have this wrong view that God should just uh, accept us the way we are, or am I happy? How do I feel? And all these idols are wrestling with us in our worship, so that when people come into worship— they really do believe it's about them, and they miss that it's really about God. And and so we shouldn't be surprised that there's so much bickering and fighting. But, man, you are resonating with me on that because we always do get, and, and not so much here anymore, but in different churches I've been at, whenever you start dealing with the worship stuff, man, you, you get all kinds of uh, arrows thrown at you.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, the the whole issue you just mentioned about the uh, the kind of me centered church thing uh, is still a big struggle to overcome here. Uh, you know, as people come in, it, they're coming in with the mindset of what can you do for me? Uh, you know what what can the church do for me? What is God going to do for me? And in a sense, I mean, yes, you know, I, I do think we need to come to be served by the Lord, uh, but I think that our attitude as we come into worship is often so man-centered that we we do, as as you were mentioning there, we start losing sight of how does God want to be honored. Um, you know, and the, the easy thing is always looking at our songs and saying, okay, how much of this is about me and how much of this is declaring things about God? It
1: comes back, um, It doesn't it come back to the idea of monergism versus synergism? And Oh, absolutely. Well, if if you know, we so really believe God is going to work through the way He's promised and prescribed that He will work through, that's monergism. We're just going to trust that He's going to do what He's going to do, and He's going to do it in us and change us. And we're not only going to enjoy worship— now because we're worshiping him in the way he wants to be worshipped, we're going to be changed because of the worship. But Absolutely. Too many people think it's synergistic. Well, I, if you want me to do my part, man, it's got to be more like this. It's just not connecting for me. It's just not happening. Yeah. No, I just
0: saw an article the other day, and they were saying, uh, you know, I can't remember where it was from. It might have been Gospel Coalition. I can't remember. But it had a number of things of, you know, what we wish worship leaders would stop saying. And <laughs> one of them was the, the phrase, you know, God, we invite you to this place. Oh my God. <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm just thinking, it, it's completely backwards. Yeah. You know, yeah. it is God who is inviting us to come. You know, we are not in any way inviting God into this space. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so strange. It's so bizarre. Sometimes some of the, the, the phraseology and the, the things that we say within the church that end up sticking around that when you stop and think about it, you're like, man, that's dumb. <laughs> I mean, how did this ever make its way in here?
1: That's, that's so true. We, there's so many goofy sayings, so many Babylon Bee uh, memes that could be made from the goofiness of worship. Um I guess one of the one of the one of the things I'd ask you is a young guy coming up. What is your early advice to him as he begins to um ask, you know, his aspirations to be a worship leader in the church? What would you say to him if he were standing right here with us right now in this conversation?
0: Oh, man. Um a number of things. I think one uh would be uh Prepared to be prepared to change, Uh, be prepared for the Lord to be working in you and changing the way you think and the way you feel and your perspectives on things. Uh, I would also tell him, uh, you know, be prepared to take a stand in your principles and the principles you hold to from scripture. There's going to be a lot of temptations uh, to compromise on those things. And, you know, perhaps, you know, you may have a church that wants you to come and serve as a worship pastor there. And, but they're kind of really off on a lot of what they're going to be teaching there and their philosophy of ministry, but it's an opportunity for you. And, and I would tell that person, save yourself from a fate worse than death. And hold to your principles and don't do it you know get yourself into a church where the word is taught faithfully uh, someplace where you are doctrinally in agreement with what's going on there and uh, and look to serve however the lord would have you to serve there Um, you know be patient be humble and allow God to use you where he wants to use you.
1: That That is some awesome advice, important advice. I hope our young guys who are listening who uh, have uh, aspirations to lead worship, that they would heed that advice. Um, Kind of as we close, I just want to say personally, man, I I'm pumped to have had this conversation with you about worship. I I love engaging in um, in talks about. What God is doing around, uh, you know, around the world, obviously, but specifically the United States, and 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 bringing back true biblical worship, because I feel like so much of the evangelical worship is just a mess. It's not worship at all, and it's so man-centered, from the goofy things that people do in the services to the things they say, um, to the bling they wear, all the goofiness that goes on and, you know, therapeutic, moralistic deism Mm -hmm. everywhere. And so it's exciting for me to have a conversation with a guy that's put a lot of thought into the way he's leading God's people into the worship. And so I appreciate you, and thanks for the time. And uh, everybody else, we'll see you next week. Thanks for
0: listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit... ProfessionalCollective.com. And be sure to like our Facebook